And I can remember I was in the car at the time and I can remember looking round and like literally two cars were singing along to stop crying your heart out. There's not many bands that can do that, create an emotion which just brings people together. I can remember sort of uh, thinking um, it's just another new story and it'll, they'll all get back together again. But, but that, that time they didn't, so it was a bit of a, an old moment. I did kind of dress like them with t-shirts, funky trainers, because they were well into their trainers. Um, and look at Hatch, yeah. Ten years ago today, Oasis announced they'd split up for good. Tonight we will tell the story of the band from the beginning, going through to the split, and looking at whether we'll ever see a reunion. This is the story of a band who led the cultural phenomenon of Britpop, who sold out world tours, who had eight number one albums, and filled more tabloid column inches than any other band in the 90s and throughout the noughties. From almost overnight success to rivalries with other bands... Well, my ears are in pain, in hearing your voice, you know what I mean? You're right, you know, music should be a uplifting thing. To rivalries within the band themselves... Liam kind of does the... You, you, and all that, and he kind of storms out of the dressing room. This is the story of the rise and fall of Oasis. This is Live Forever. Tonight, on the 10th anniversary of Oasis Split, we'll look at how a band that formed in Manchester in 1991 went on to conquer the world and we'll investigate whether a reunion could ever happen, and more importantly, whether people still want to see it. Tonight, we'll talk to fans and friends and people who worked with the band to get the full picture and tell the history of Oasis, including their first plugger, Dylan White. Everything was driven by Liam. It was all Liam. Liam was, like, outgoing, wanting to meet everybody, wanted to be a superstar was just loving every minute. Legendary photographer Jill Fermanovsky. I have a great deal of love for them. You know, uh, all the incantations, and I've been with three different versions of, of Oasis. But the brothers, you know, they're, they're kind of um, a little bit like family to me as well. And music journalist Paolo Hewitt. So what did Noel say? He said, um, Liam's a fork in a world full of soup. And it's true, because Liam was, you know, Liam was always going to go his own way. We'll talk to the man who first signed them, Alan McGee. When bands get big, you just got to go, OK, you know what I mean? But, you know, just because basically, you know, you know, arguably, they actually know what they're doing, you know what I mean? And those who made up the band. We had a very conservative record label in America, Epic Records, and they were petrified of us. And we did, we did not get on with them. They just didn't understand our lack of professionalism. We'll talk to fans who worship them. What they did for music at that time, I honestly don't think that you can put it into words. Like, they pulled rock music into a completely different dimension. They were clear winners in the Britpop War versus Blur. And look at how a band on top of the world during the 90s called it a day in 2009. Oasis have split, and according to Noel Gallagher this time, it's for good. Noel announced he's quitting the band because he can't work a day longer with his brother Liam final straw came when the two came to blows before a gig at a festival in Paris. Tonight we'll look at why the split occurred. Either the record company or the management kept pushing it and people got bored of them. You know, you'd, after Nebworth they should have just disappeared. We'll examine the influence Oasis still have. Here we are 20 years later and there's this stadium going berserk. It's, um, it makes you think that no one's there because of you. You're only part of it. Something, something else happened, but you were only a part of. And we'll talk to those that know them best about how the split affected their wider circle. 
it's just like I suppose when couples get divorced you know you if you're friendly with one and the other's not too happy and it's very difficult to keep a balance I, I don't know how Peggy Gallagher does it because she's a mum you know um, I guess she you know she's had to find her way through it this is live forever Whenever Oasis is mentioned, the two people who immediately spring to mind are Noel and Liam. Their creative partnership and family ties and indeed family tensions are what made the band impossible to ignore. But the story of Oasis begins without Noel. The origins of Oasis begin with bassist Paul Gwigsy McGuigan, who invited his old school friend Liam to join the band The Rain as a vocalist. The band also included guitarist Paul Bonehead Arthurs and drummer Tony McCarroll, who were part of the original Oasis lineup. By all accounts, the band's music wasn't great. Noel described them as just awful, with Liam acknowledging, we were <laughs> We'll let you make up your own mind. After Liam joined the band, he suggested they change their name to Oasis after seeing the name of the Oasis Leisure Centre in Swindon as a venue on the Inspiral Carpets poster. While the original group by their own admission wasn't great, Noel went to see them at their first gig as Oasis at the Boardwalk Club in Manchester in 1991. It was after this gig that Liam asked Noel to become the band's manager. Noel had recently been a roadie for the band that inspired the Oasis name, the Inspiral Carpets. Liam obviously felt this stint in the music industry had given Noel a good grounding to take the band to the next level. Noel did begrudgingly become the band's manager, and it wasn't long before Liam started to suggest his brother should come in and jam with the band. I remember kind of putting it off for a while, and then anyway, one Sunday, they had to pass my house, my flat where I lived, to go to the rehearsal room. And uh, they just doorstepped me and picked me up and said, come on. So I went and, and did it. And I've got to say, as the band started playing and I joined in, I thought, I quite like this. Noel did eventually join the band as a full member and straight away took control of the creative process, giving the band songs he'd written. He changed the way the band played to a simpler style with basic chord and notes being played by Arthurs and McGuigan and McCarroll drumming basic rhythms behind them. And the original lineup of Oasis was born. The band spent much of the next year practicing, gigging, and producing demo tapes just like this one. It wasn't until May 1993 that the band's big break came. Oasis had agreed to play the King Tut's Wawa Hut in Glasgow, supporting the Sister Lovers, a band who the boys had become friendly with on the road when they shared a dressing room. In order to get to Glasgow, Noel and Liam hired a van and set off up to Scotland. Originally, the band were refused entry to the club as they weren't on the original set list. Thankfully, they got in and played the opening slot of the night. In the crowd at the King Tut's Wawa Hut was the co-founder and co-owner of Creation Records, Alan McGee, and he liked what he saw. How I found Oasis was a kind of just, a, it was just, it was probably just a complete meant to be moment, really. Um, I was in Glasgow 
I was going to get the train back. I couldn't really be bothered with the six-hour train back. My friend Debbie Turner from uh, Manchester was in this band that was playing the first ever gig called Sister Lovers. So I thought that it would be good fun to show up at her first ever gig and make her nervous, right? You know, because I'm that kind of nice kind of person. And so anyways, I got there and Debbie looked at me as if she'd seen a ghost. And there was these moody manks, about 12 or 13 of them, that had come up in this bus that no must have hired, I reckon. And, and in amongst the moody manks was this incredibly good looking one in kind of like Man City Blue, full on tracksuit with designer trainers, right? Looked like Paul Weller. Like, and I thought, as I do, that cannot be the singer because that never happens. So he's got to be the drug dealer. Well, I think it was fate that Alan was there, more for him than us. But um, if I could have, you know, in hindsight now, if you could wish for anybody to walk into that gig, it would have been him. Because he owned his own, he wasn't an AR man, he owned his own record label, he ran it all. What he said went. And I got lucky as well because it was like, you know, apart from being there, Oasis had done In The City 93, had played it, had blown it. The brothers had had a tiff on stage or a, a, a brotherly sibling rivalry moment and, you know, like, walked off stage about four or five songs in in front of the entire music industry and everybody had went football hoolies pass. So nobody was looking. And it wasn't in the days of Google and the internet and, and YouTube. And then, it, then they started playing little clubs and then they, they were doing the toilets, but they were selling them. And then they'd be come back and then they were getting upgraded to the bigger rooms, to the 500 capacities, 800 capacities. They did a British tour with a band called Whiteout. And Whiteout were the headliners. They, they, they considered themselves to be up and running. And Oasis were the sort of little Herbert support band. By the time the tour finished, that had changed. And it was, it was pretty much overnight. It was like... First single, I think, went in at 31. The second single went in at... It went top 20. And then Live Forever, I think, went in at 8. And at that point, we knew we were rolling. Maybe I don't really want to know How you got in girls Cause I just want to fly Lately Did you ever feel the pain In the morning rain in August 1994, their debut album, Definitely Maybe, was released. The album went straight to number one in the UK and became the fastest-selling debut album at the time. As the 90s wore on, the success that Oasis had slowly been building up to this point grew rapidly, and despite Tony McCarroll being replaced by new drummer Alan White, the band Oasis were fast becoming a worldwide phenomena. All of a sudden, there's more security. <laughs> there's more security around them. So that sort of thing changed. And as it went on to Earl's Court, Main Road... Huge gigs. There was, yeah, the security level went up big time, and particularly Liam had a minder. That lineup with Whitey and Bonehead and Griggs and Noel and Liam was for me the most fun because they were their funniest. They were hilarious. I, I went to see them in Sheffield, their first arena gig at Sheffield Arena, and afterwards we were in this hotel room, and Noel said to me, "Do you know where we were a year ago?" And I said, "Where?" And he said, "We were in a pub in Leeds." Paint like two people and a dog. So it really was a meteoric rise 
With the lineup in place, the band released their first UK number one single, Some Might Say. Me and Noel get into an argument on this one because he wanted Some Might Say as the side. He, what he won. <laughs> he got his way, but uh, I wanted acquiesce. And I just think, what a glorious tune this would have been to be the, the first Oasis number one. It would have been amazing. I mean, I love Some Might Say, but, but this would be such a tune. Given the success of Some Might Say, it was no surprise that when the band released the album it came from, What's the Story, Morning Glory, in October 1995, it went straight in at number one. I was lucky enough to be there from the very beginning and we got the early, early Oasis stuff. So we were into, we felt Oasis were kind of part of our childhood growing up. I listened to them like, in my dad's car. He definitely had the tape. I remember listening to that quite a lot when I was little. Morning Glory, 100% best album ever. They just had all the energy from being their first ever album. The, the, the greatest experience a band can have is on the, is when they hit the hit the the up button and they start going upwards and everything they've dreamed of starts becoming a reality eg top of the pops hit records sold out gigs music press all over them radio all over them tv all over them everything they've dreamed of suddenly becomes reality and it's a fantastic thing to watch because people are really excited and and it was a, and like i say it, it was a lot of fun and unpredictable, you never knew what was going to kind of happen and and it had that edge to it, but it, 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 it was just amazing to watch. As the band basked in the glory of two number one albums, they spent the summer of 1996 playing a series of gigs which would become the real I Was There moment for all Oasis fans who attended. The first iconic venue they played was part of a homecoming gig at Main Road, the home of their beloved Manchester City. They did two nights at Main Road, playing to 40,000 people on each night, but the much bigger crowds were just around the corner. In August, the band played back-to-back -back nights at Nebworth House, playing to over 250,000 people. The support on the nights came from bands like the Manic Street Preachers, Cooler Shaker, And the Prodigy. It was the type of gig that most bands can only dream of, and arguably it was the peak of Oasis's popularity. It was the speed that Oasis did it in, in two years. In two years from playing, you know, the Water Rats. To, to Nebworth and then it came to light like it was there, there was one Nebworth and there'd be a second if if the phone keeps ringing we'll sell more tickets it was really hard to get tickets and if you got a ticket it was kind of like oh my god everybody wanted to buy the ticket off you seeing them live was amazing because and it, it's kind of more amazing with kind of hindsight and looking back at it just ridiculous filthy dirty gigs like how I used to love them it was amazing it was electric it was just absolutely amazing best bands that were on at the time, like Prodigy, Fatboy, but Oasis topped a lot, didn't it? Well, people do play Nebworth and have since done more gigs than us, but I'm not sure a band, even, you know, where's the gang of lads who's coming to form a band on a council estate and to somehow do it all on their own terms on an independent record label and become the biggest band in the world? You know, that means inspiring a generation in your own country that's the easy bit. But, you know, inspiring a generation in, in America as well and in Italy and France and Japan and Australia, you know what I mean? Uh, all the thing that you've seen at Nebworth, that happened all over the world. You know, we were playing yeah. stadiums everywhere. 
Maybe Noel loved it because they were so big, but I think the rest of them really felt like it just wasn't fun anymore. And I think, personally, I think after Nebworth, they should have done two things, either taken a year off, right, or split up and gone, that's it, we've taken this as far as we can. Thank you so much, goodbye. And they'd have gone down in history as, you know, this amazing thing. After the Nebworth gigs, where was left to go for Oasis? Find out next on Live Forever. You're listening to Oasis Live Forever on Absolute Radio. After two number one albums, a series of seminal outdoor gigs in 1996 and a bucket full of top ten hits, everyone was wondering what would happen next for Oasis. Music journalist and author Paolo Hewitt explains how everything changed for the band after they released their third album, Be Here Now. I went on the Be Here Now tour, which was a six-month world tour, to write a book called Forever the People. And that was a slog, because suddenly it's, it's not little clubs anymore, and it's not, you know, there's a whole weight of expectancy on them because they're playing arenas. You know, everything suddenly became very serious. While Be Here Now sold nearly half a million copies on the day of its release, making it Oasis's fastest-selling album at the time, it has since been described as the death of the Britpop movement. It went seriously downhill after the second album, Oasis. Didn't buy the third one because it sounded awful, and it was awful, even Knowles admitted that. However, Q Magazine's Ted Kessler disagrees. I think every one of those first three Oasis albums had an enormous impact in a way that nobody could really believe, and I don't think creation were really prepared for it. Their former manager Alan McGee also questions if the album really was a flop. So that can that sold eleven million? I mean that everybody goes on about, you know, that's a failure. And you know, me and Noel have both had our moments when we've looked at each other and laughed and we just went, you know what, we really are failures. Do you know what I mean? You know? But they, they only take eyes that that could be called failures, but I released it and you wrote it. It was only eleven million. Totally not. Legendary photographer Jill Fermanovsky suggests that after early success, many rock bands find it difficult to carry on with the same level of success. Um, my experience with rock bands is that their first few albums are an outpouring of what they've been saving up since they were four or something. And when they've got that out and it's been successful, they're then in a place that they were, weren't in before and therefore there's not that many artists that can continue at a very high level to produce the same quantity of great material. 
It was around this time that relations between Liam and Noel started to strain to breaking point. Their early plugger, Dylan White, explains why this started to happen. They weren't shoving in the same cars. That, well, that's what happens with success. You don't, you're no longer in the van. You, then you start having a car, then you have your own cars. If you're getting on, that's fine, because you still talk to other. But if you're not getting on, you've done the gig, and you get in the car, and that's it. After the lukewarm reaction to Be Here Now, the band kept a low profile and went back to working in the studio in 1999 to begin work on their next album, but all was not well. Bonehead went, and Griggsy went. So you got in Andy Bell, and you got in Gem. Right, so they kind of um, do as they're told, so to speak. They took that private turbulence into the public arena, and that's why it was always kind of... Oh, are they going to split up or are they not? If you know turbulence as a child, you, you, you keep turbulence. You have to have turbulence as an adult because that's what you know. And that's what made them so fascinating and compelling. Standing on the Shoulder of Giants was the first album Oasis released on their own label Big Brother when it came out in February 2000. This was also the first album to feature a song written by Liam Gallagher. The track was called Little James. Despite it being the fourth Oasis album to reach number one, Standing on the Shoulder of Giants is the band's lowest-selling studio album. To support the album, the band went on another world tour, but as ever with Oasis, it was eventful. The band had to cancel a date in Barcelona when drummer Alan White had an attack of tendonitis causing his arm to seize up. Instead of playing the gig, the band went out drinking. And Game Archer, he, I went there with a rep coming to publish, right? and he talked us through what had happened. He went, it was like a reenactment of a football manoeuvre. He went, well, Liam was standing there. Well, then Noel was there. And then something happened. And, and then Liam picked up this plum and threw it at him. <laughs> and he threw my back. Or something like, something like that. Right, over some bit of fruit, fruit throwing incident. Noel was eventually persuaded to return for the Irish and British legs of the tour, including two major shows at Wembley. Liam was pretty before he went on. And um, he just antagonised Noel for the whole gig. He was like, virtually when, because Noel did sing some songs, he was like taking the piss out of him. He was like, whoa! I remember being at Nebworth thinking, everybody's here. Skinheads, mods, punks, goths, new romantics, you know, teddy boys. You know, <laughs> you know, it was the whole, everybody was fascinated by this thing called Oasis. Three years later, I go to Wembley Stadium. All it was was loads of geezers, and bury each other trying to be Liam. I mean, the thing is, it's very, you know, somebody says to you, here's X amount of million pounds, you know, it's very hard to, you know, you kind of stomach a lot of things to, to get to that, don't you? Do you know what I mean? During 2001, Oasis headed back into the studio to start work on their fifth album, Heathen Chemistry. The album was the first to fully feature the new lineup and was seen as more of a return to the band's original sounds. American music magazine Blender stated the album showed Oasis were a band back on track. As with all the studio albums before it, Heathen Chemistry went to number one on the British album charts. It also featured the first single Oasis released that wasn't written by Noel. Songbird instead was written by Liam. Talking to the songbird yesterday Threw me to a pair Sons of love to pass the time 
In the summer of 2002, the band started a world tour to support the release of the album. Whilst the tour was once again filled with incidents and even arrests, the band stuck together and the tour is seen as largely a successful one. It was arenas. Every, everywhere was an arena. You, you know, they weren't playing small places. You know, there, there was a sense of, you know, of um, corralling them in, you know, of, right, we're now professionals, we've got to be professional about this. Whenever they were together, they suddenly started talking a lot about the early days. It was like they kept on wanting to go back to when they were in a little van somewhere trundling around. In December 2003, Liam revealed the band was recording its sixth album. The album was originally planned to come out in September 2004 to mark the 10th anniversary of Definitely Maybe. However, in January 2004, Alan White would leave the band. White was then replaced by Zach Starkey, who'd been drumming with The Who. Starkey was also the son of the Beatles' Ringo Starr. Although he had played on studio recordings and toured with the band, Starkey was never an official member of Oasis. For the first time, the band was a four-piece. Along with Alan White's departure, the journey to record Don't Believe the Truth was not a smooth one. The band had to scrap recording sessions and eventually they headed to Los Angeles in October 2004 to finalise the recording. The album, which like Heathen Chemistry, was a collaborative project rather than only being written by Noel, was seen by many as their best work since What's the Story Morning Glory. The album contained three top ten singles, with Lila and the importance of being idle going to number one. without any major incident and was the band's most successful tour for more than a decade. Following the release of Don't Believe the Truth, Oasis experienced a surge in popularity. In 2008, Q Magazine conducted a poll to find the 50 greatest British albums of the last 50 years definitely maybe came out on top, with What's the Story Morning Glory coming in at number two. In late 2007, Oasis were back in the studio working on their seventh album, Dig Out Your Soul. The album reached number one, meaning that every one of Oasis's studio albums had topped the album's chart in the UK. The album also reached number five on the Billboard 200 in the US, making it the highest charting Oasis album in the US since Be Here Now reached number two in 1997. I think the American sensibilities are different to, to, to ours. So whereas we kind of go, wow, look at these guys, they're amazing. Um, and there certainly is a sizable amount of Americans who, who felt the same way. They didn't have enough to kind of tip it over into the U2 Rolling Stones. Following the completion of the album, Zach Starkey left the band and was replaced with Icicle Works drummer Chris Sharrick for the Dig Out Your Soul tour. As Noel Gallagher once said, it's, it's, as long as it's Noel and Liam, you can, it could be you, me and your gran, 
and that's Oasis. In August 2008, Oasis started out on a world tour that was due to extend over a year long. The tour had started well, but all was not well within the band. Something was maybe amiss or, or things weren't quite right and I thought I should, you know, go and, go and see what was going on for myself and I went to um, Bridlington. Things were amiss. It was not a good atmosphere. Um, separate dressing rooms. Just generally not a good atmosphere. That's all I can say. The gig was still fantastic. It was absolutely great. They kept talking about the past and they kept talking about Manchester, you know. And I think it was because, you know, I don't think they thought that they were going to get this big. The mission, I think, was to take over the Stone Roses, right? Which they did, and then some. Somebody went, "Oh no, no, no! You, you're going, you're going ten feet higher than that," you know, which is what they did. And I, I, I think it kind of, I can't, it kind of threw them a bit. I think things went from bad to worse in October 2008 when, in Toronto at the annual Virgin Festival, a man ran on stage and attacked Noel. While the band finished the gig that night, Noel had suffered serious bruising to his ribs and hip and doctors advised him to rest, meaning the band had to cancel and reschedule some of their shows. The news got better in October as Oasis broke the record for ticket sales in a single day in the UK, selling over 500,000 tickets in just seven hours. However, there was still a hint of tension behind the scene when Noel announced this could be his last ever tour with Oasis due to growing older. Noel was saying, after this tour, that's it. I'm just going to put my feet up. I've got millions in the bank. I'm just going to put my feet up and I'm never going to write another song and that's it. And Liam said, no, you won't. And Liam, Noel said, well, how do you know I won't? He said, because I'm your brother. You know, and that was always underlying it. They were brothers. In the summer of 2009, the band started the UK leg of their tour, and despite issues at Heaton Park, where due to a generator failure, the band had to declare the gig a free concert, and some sound issues at one of their Wembley Stadium dates, the band seemed to be enjoying themselves. You know, that I perfected that role of that guy who just stood on the right and played the lead guitar and done backing vocals and sang the odd acoustic. I mastered that. It took me 18 years. 18 years it took me to get that right and I was brilliant at it if anybody came to the last tour you'll know I mean I was when Liam pulled out of the V Festival in Chelmsford on the 23rd of August Noel claimed it was because Liam was hung over Liam sued his brother and only withdrew the suit when Noel issued an apology but the tensions didn't subside you know he didn't turn up for the, to the V Festival gig because he had an hangover you know he claimed he had laryngitis but whatever and there was a lot of bad press around that and in his own head he thinks that I'm some kind of puppet master who controls the media in England. Five days later, before the gig at the Rock and Seine Festival near Paris, a fight broke out backstage between the two brothers. 
just the way they are. They were always going to have one hell of a row at some point, and that was going to be the end of it. They're trying to dominate the band in each of their own in, in their own way. So. I think splitting was inevitable. It was getting a bit depressing towards the end. That there was too much fighting going on between them. They lost the mojo. I mean, not Liam's admitted, no, Noel's admitted, hasn't he? He says they should have quit after the second album. Because after that, it all went downhill. Just minutes before the gig began, the band's managers announced they had cancelled the performance, stating Oasis doesn't exist anymore. Two hours later, a statement from Noel appeared on the band's website. It is with some sadness and great relief, I quit Oasis tonight. People will write and say what they like, but I simply could not go on working with Liam a day longer. And with that, Oasis ceased to exist. But what really is the band's legacy? How did a band that was on top of the world implode so spectacularly? And is there hope for a future reunion? Find out next in the final part of Live Forever. You're listening to Oasis Live Forever on Absolute Radio. Ten years ago today, on the 28th of August, before an appearance at a festival near Paris, Oasis broke up and never reunited. But was the split coming? Legendary photographer and friend of the band, Jill Fermanovsky, explains what the final tour was like. I'd done um, Heaton Park, which had a lot of tension, but that's what I remember. The band's first manager, Alan McGee, was shocked. I thought it was going to go on forever. So did they. <laughs> Author and music journalist Paolo Hewitt, who'd been on earlier tours with the band, had seen it coming. I was at home and I thought, oh, they've finally done it. You know, it was always going to happen, you know, but finally something had pushed somebody over the edge, you know. Their first plugger, Dylan White, thought it was just another tiff at first. It was taken with a bit of a pinch of salt, but, oh, right. You, You know, you never sort of thought it would end. The response from Oasis fans, however, was one of sadness. I can remember where I was. I was in a reception in a hotel in Paris, a hotel reception in Paris, and they had the news channel, BBC News, on in the background. It was the breaking news that Oasis had split up. Like, number one, when is there ever breaking news that a band split up? That's how big they were. They were literally breaking news that it, it had happened. I think they've both got massive egos and I think they both want to compete to be the best songwriter, the best performer and there's not no room in one band for that sort of uh, relationship with two brothers. With the genius of Noel and the ego of Liam, it was destiny that they were never going to be together forever. Um, it took 
probably three or four days to kind of get my head around the fact that, that actually they might not be getting back together. It was quite big because we were like the biggest band for such a long time. I was quite sad, yeah, I really was. I think I actually shed a tear. <laughs> Today was gonna be the day, but they'll never throw it back to you. By now you should have somehow realized what you're not to do. It kind of all started to unravel, if I'm being honest, when he started his clothing label and he demanded that in the Oasis tour programme that he be allowed to advertise it, which I was, I was against because I, 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 I didn't think that it was right for him to be flogging his gear to our fans. And there was a massive row about that and it kind of went back and forward for a bit as I remember it, and in the end I said, all right, well, if you, if you want to advertise in the programme, how much? And he couldn't get his head around that, and I was like, well, if Electrolux Kettles, you know, want to advertise Kettles in the tour programme, they pay us money, right? So how much are you going to pay me? And he hit the roof, and it, kind of, it slowly went downhill from there. Before Oasis had split, some people said the Dig Out Your Soul tour had lacked energy. Well, the thing is, with any big band, once you, you get there, you, you've somehow got to keep it interesting and exciting. And if that communication is gone, then you get the same thing. So when it got to like old Milton Keynes gigs, once that sort of thing is the same thing from one night to the next, it's not, it loses a, a sparkle. And you notice that with bands like U2, they change the, the, they change the set. I mean, there's, there's like, there's, there's chunks of it are identical. Right? But within it, songs change every night, every night. So there's something different that you've got to be on your toes to go, well, I'll play that one tonight, I'll play that one. And if that is just like, well, there's a set, then it's, it's like, it's sort of big playing by numbers. Everybody was used to it. Everybody kind of, oh, this is what they do. They, they, lost their, they lost their mojo, you know, which made them unique. But not everyone would agree. They still had energy. It wasn't the same as you know the early albums. They still had energy, and the, the lineup on the day was amazing. It was the best gig I've ever been to that show without, and it probably always will be. A couple of years later, Noel spoke to Absolute Radio, where he explained a bit more about that night in Paris. It was quite violent at that point. It, not there hadn't been any physical violence, but it was kind of you know it's a bit like. WWE wrestling, and he was like the macho man Randy Savage, do you know what I mean? There's a lot of, oh yeah, and all that gear going on, and it's like, you know. I'll never forget, uh, there's all this kind of toing and froing going on, and, um, and I'm looking at Andy, who's sat there, constantly counting how many shoes he's got on, and he ain't saying anything. Liam kind of storms out of the dressing room, but on the way out, and I'm glad it never ended like this, he picked up a plum, and he threw it across the dressing room, 
and it smashed against the wall. And for whatever reason, he went to his own dressing room and he came back with a guitar and started wielding it like an axe, and I'm not kidding. It's a real unnecessary violent act, and he's swinging this guitar around and he kind of, you know, he nearly took my face off with it. And it ended up on the floor, you know, and, and it, I put it out of its misery, you know. Then I said, you know, well, look, there's, I mean, there was people who were in the band not saying anything, kind of looking the other way. It wasn't even a big dressing room, do you know what I mean? We were all involved in it and nobody was saying anything. So I was like, you know what? I'm out of here, you know. And at that point, the tour manager came in and just went, five minutes. But was there any way the tour could have ended differently? If I had my time again, I'd have gone back and done the gigs. That gig would have been dreadful because he was out of his mind, you know. I'd have done that gig and I'd have done the next gig and we'd have all gone away and we could have probably discussed it, what we were going to do. We may never have split up. With such a dramatic split, there was always going to be a falling out and some people were caught in the middle. Suddenly you were pushed from one, you know, out of one camp and into another and that has never really recovered, although... Occasionally I see Liam at some event or other where we're both there and he's always polite and friendly. Um, but, you know, I don't feel welcome in... I haven't been made to feel welcome in that, on that side. Funny enough, it's not just Liam, but actually some of the road crew split. And um, from time to time I've bumped into them and, and I've, I've thought, oh, God, yeah, they're, they're working with... This lot are working with Liam and other lots are working with Noel. So even within that... Um, there was a kind of a split, so I lost a few road crew friends because I was always felt more of the crew. The resentment between Noel and Liam has only increased over time, and given the fact the brothers enjoy a Twitter spat on an almost monthly basis, is there any hope for a reunion anytime soon? No, you can never say never. Never say never. I mean, oh, sure, the the the, the pair of them have done very well with High Flying Birds and with Liam on his last solo album. Just like, well, I don't really have to. Even if they are getting constantly offered money to um, go back together, it's like I don't have to. Uh, I don't know, man. I can't see it. Not in the, not in the short term, anyway. Not anytime soon. Well, I think you have to say never say never because I saw Pink Floyd reunite. <laughs> I never thought in a million years that Pink Floyd would ever reunite. What, what I did notice about that particular re reunion, the Pink Floyd one, which was just for a few gigs and for charity, and I was actually there at the time, it was incredible, is that whilst it was a fantastic reunion gig and most unexpected, it didn't heal any of the wounds that had been made previously. And 
I would say they, they were just buried for a short period of time. And when there are a lot of wounds, as there are in um, this particular situation, if they did reunite, it might be some bonkers situation that might make them do so, but I wouldn't assume then that, um, you know, Oasis are back together. So whilst I have no knowledge of any reuniting, you should never say never, always leave a kind of crack open. That's how the light gets in, isn't that what Leonard Cohen said? I think a lot of people like, and this is not me putting it out there going, oh, I need my brother. I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing. I'm having a nice time. I'm sure he is, you know what I mean? But I just think sometimes like the Smiths and the Jam and all that, I think we should put all our aside and just all have a good time, you know what I mean? Before, you know, go somewhere else. Even if a reunion did happen, would people still care? If Oasis got back together, I would probably have to put off buying a house for another five years because the amount of money that I would probably have to end up paying for a ticket would be insane. No, because I don't think oh, this is never going to happen. Noel's not going to do it. He doesn't need to go back there. Too much has been said and done. Actually, yeah, I would. Because it would just take me back to my youth and my younger days and times when I could just do what I wanted. And that would be really good, yeah. Things shouldn't go on forever like that. They should end. It just makes it more beautiful. Q Magazine's Ted Kessler also gives us his thoughts. I think the whole world would like an Oasis reunion. I think everyone apart from Noel Gallagher would like an Oasis reunion. I think maybe deep down he might even want one, but he will not do it because of his brother. Even just despite his brother, he won't do it. I mean, at some point, if you've got teenage children and you're an Oasis, why not show them what it was like? Why not play Wembley Stadium six nights in a row and show everyone how good you were? Just once. If he came back, it would be good. That's the crazy thing. Do you know what I mean? What's the point? It feels like Noel's on his own little thing now and Liam's on his, and what is the point? While it doesn't look like the band will be reuniting anytime soon, they still have an incredible legacy. Throughout the 1990s, Oasis led the way of the Call Britannia movement, which restored optimism and pride across the country after the tumultuous decades of the 70s and the 80s. On top of this, many great bands we still enjoy today from the UK and further afield have said that Oasis are one of their main inspirations. That's bands including The Killers... The Arctic Monkeys... Shake, baby. Snap out of 
push down the bottle men. The Strokes. Since a way to split, the Gallagher brothers have continued to make music of their own, with fans divided over whose offering they prefer. Noel Gallagher is clear genius. He's a songwriter, he did it all. If there's no Noel, there's no Oasis, so, you know. Liam stayed a bit more relevant. He's a bit more, like, still in the media. You can't deny the fact that Liam embodies Oasis. He embodies the swagger. He's obviously the voice. Like, I, I think that there's so much more Oasis in Liam than there is in Noel. Without doubt, Noel is the better artist, the better songwriter, um, but the better performer is Liam still. Noel wins hands down. He's the most original. You look at his music now, it's gone somewhere, it's changed, it's, it's developed. Whereas Liam still sounds like Oasis in 94. Well, the most gifted one's got to be Noel, um, but the main man had to be Liam, didn't it? And while their solo careers have been successful, they haven't come close to eclipsing the success of Oasis. So what is it that makes that band so special? Those songs, those songs like The Wonder Walls and Live Forever's and that, they, they resonated. They're football terrorist songs. They're sung in, in football terrorists, they're sung everywhere. And you can't, you, any pub singer is doing an Oasis songs. There, there are a lot of iconic bands and artists that I have worked with. Bob Dylan, Pink Floyd, for example, with Bob Marley I worked. Uh, later on, Amy Winehouse. But Oasis were, for me, they were the last great band of the rock and roll era. They're my last great rock band. Oasis uh, culturally was significant just because it was so big, you know what I mean? And everybody dressed like them, do you remember that? Crazy, absolutely crazy. You know, Oasis sort of defined that 1995, 1996, 1997 period. Musically, they're a lot probably better. But they haven't got a Liam or they haven't got a Noel, you know, and you know that's what people respond to even now. Whatever the future holds for the Gallagher brothers and for Oasis, what we do know is their influence on British culture isn't going away anytime soon. And their fans still remain as committed as ever. I started dressing up as them. I bought a Parker because I really like their music. I think the, the two brothers, the Ridiots, well, they're one of the best bands that I've ever played. Champagne Supernova, I think, is also an, an excellent track. So that, that, would, that would probably be the ultimate sort of rock track there. But I'll leave the final words to Paolo Hewitt. They had their own unique sound. They had their own unique look. And, and had, they had this attitude. But that attitude was basically narrated through Liam. So it was Liam attacking the photographer, Liam coming out of clubs out of his head at six in the morning, getting arrested by the police. You know, it, it, so he was doing that bit and Noel was doing the song. And together, they, they conquered the world. That conquered the world. But the trouble was, was they were two kids in Burnage, Manchester, in a small working-class council house who dreamt of all this, who dreamt of being stars, who dreamt of being successful, who dreamt of having big houses, beautiful girlfriends, and they achieved it all. And the trouble was they didn't know what to do afterwards when you're writing songs about you want to be a rock and roll star well you can't do that when you've got a 30 million pound house in shelf on St Peter's and you know all, all the rest of the accoutrements that, that go with it and you know if you run out of dreams you should really go back to bed and find some more I've been Ben Burrell and this 
has been Live Forever 